Hi, this is Steve Sleeper, producer of the North Omaha History Podcast. It's a volunteer effort, but you can help us meet expenses by becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Go to patreon.com slash Omaha. The list of patrons and the link to Patreon is in the show notes. You can also help by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Thanks. Welcome to the North Omaha History Podcast with noted author and historian Adam Fletcher Sassy. Each week, Adam takes you on a guided tour through Omaha's dynamic past. For more than a century, Nebraska's textbooks taught students there was barely any slavery in Nebraska. But now Adam's uncovered some startling history that uh, has never been collected in the state's history. So, Adam, tell us about the real story of enslavement in Nebraska. Steve, I want to start this with the summary, just so you can hear the the facts, the the quick to the point. There were far more than 13 slaves in Nebraska in 1856. That's the popular number thrown around, way more than that. The second fact Nebraska's history of slavery was written by a white supremacist, and it was made popular that way. A lot of Nebraska's historical figures were complicit in slavery. And then the third fact is that John Brown himself, the militant abolitionist, was active in Nebraska, and the territory was the Western Front for the Civil War. So take all that for a second, and let's jump way back. Let's jump way back to the 18... Oh, wait, not just the 1800s. Let's go back to the 1500s, Steve. That's right, the 1500s. Spanish explorers came to Nebraska, and when they came to Nebraska, they brought with them Africans who were enslaved, and these were the first black people in Nebraska. In 1542, there was a black explorer called Estevanico who explored Nebraska with the Spaniards. This is the first known African-American person, well, African person, in Nebraska. You never heard his name in Nebraska history before, though, because Estevanico was erased from Nebraska history. Oh, you know, let's let's do jump up to, uh, I don't know, 1804, when Lewis and Clark came through on their famous expedition. We've got that beautiful spot down on the river that celebrates their exploration of the city, their exploration of the region, their exploration of the West. But they don't mention the slave who was with them at that site. His name was York. In 1804, York accompanied Clark, William Clark, as his property. He was enslaved. And that was in 1804. We don't talk about the 1810s when Manuel Lisa, a Spanish fur trader, set up a trading post north of Dodge Park there in North Omaha, who definitely had African slaves at his fort. We don't talk about the 1820s when the United States Army had Fort Atkinson in the north part of Douglas County, the south part of Washington County, where they had slaves that were owned by the officers. We don't talk about Fort Kearney that was down uh, at the conjunction of the 
Platte River and the Missouri River for a couple of years where there were enslaved people owned by officers of the U.S. Army. We don't talk about the new Fort Kearney that was built out in Kearney where there were more enslaved people who were owned by the officers. We don't talk about the U.S. federal employees who worked in Omaha starting in 1854 when the territory was established who enslaved Africans. We don't talk about the territorial governors who did the same. But all of these people had enslaved people in their possession. The founder of Nebraska City owned several slaves. And in 1854, when the territory was first opened up for settlement, they did an informal survey. They found 10 slaves in Nebraska. In 1856, they found 13, and that number was repeated for the next 100 years after. Oh, there are only 13 slaves in Nebraska. Well, there were only 13 slaves, and people were so proud to say that. Now, why did they say that, Steve? Well, I'm going to come back to that later on. But let's talk about who was enslaved in Nebraska. You see... Enslavement had been part of the United States, right, ever since 1619, and even before that. But that enslavement was not really acknowledged when Nebraska was opened up, because Nebraska had this complicated history of why it came around that was all based on enslavement. It was all based on the idea of a northern Democratic senator who actually believed that there should be a transcontinental railroad, but the same guy believed that there should be enslavement across the country. Well, he knew that he wasn't going to get that passed, so he compromised. This wasn't the Missouri Compromise of 1820. This was the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. That's really what opened up the territory. Nebraska was built on slavery. Or the absence of it. But like I said, there were lots of slaves in the state before that. Specifically, Estevanico, who I mentioned, who was owned by Antonio de Mendoza, who is the viceroy of New Spain. Estevanico came to southeast Nebraska. York, owned by William Clark, came on the western banks of the Missouri River. The enslaved people at Fort Lisa, whose names I cannot find yet. The enslaved people at Cantonment, Missouri, from 1819 to 1820, near North Omaha. The enslaved people at Fort Atkinson, the enslaved people at Cabernet's Post, the enslaved people at the First Fort Kearney, the enslaved people at Winter Quarters. We know their names. Oh, yes, Harkley, Wales. He was at Winter Quarters in the Florence neighborhood of present-day North Omaha. Green Flake was at Winter Quarters, enslaved by the Mormons. Henry Brown was enslaved by the Mormons at Winter Quarters. Jane Manning James was enslaved at Winter Quarters. Jacob Bankhead. Well, Jacob Bankhead wasn't enslaved at Winter Quarters because he died before he got there. But he was buried in the Mormon Pioneer Cemetery, and his corpse is still there today. He's in an unmarked grave. Well, they made a little tableau that, that mentions that there are unnamed people there, and that's supposed to lead to his tribute. But James Jacob Bankhead is buried in North Omaha, the first known African-American to be buried in Nebraska. Well, the territory opens up in 1854. You know, the Mormons left by 1848 or so. 
and the territory opens up in 1854, and enslaved people, well, they were right there from the beginning. James C. Mitchell, who founded Florence almost a decade after the Mormons left, he owned enslaved people and had a slave house behind his own house. An enslaved man was owned by Mark Izzard, the governor of the Nebraska Territory. Then Nebraska City. Nebraska City, it's worth noting, was actually the most popular city in Nebraska for several years at the outset of the territory at the beginning. I've tracked no fewer than 15 enslaved people to that town when it was new. Hercules and Martha. They were owned by Judge Charles Hawley uh, in Nebraska City. He actually had them taken away from him during a bankruptcy trial. A businessman named Robert Kirkham kept a slave that he brought with him from Missouri to Nebraska City. The founder of Nebraska City was a man named Stephen Knuckles. You might be familiar with Knuckles County or Knuckles Park in Nebraska City. Yeah, he was the founder of Nebraska City. Yeah, he owned several slaves. He owned a man called Shade and a man called Shack. He owned a woman called Celia and another woman named Eliza Grayson. Interesting thing about Eliza and Celia and maybe even Shade. They escaped. You see, the trend towards slavery was waning in Nebraska. It wasn't as popular as it had been. And the, the tension in the territory was super high. From the beginning, pro-slavery radicals from southeast Nebraska, they wanted their counties to secede from Nebraska. They were called the South Platte Group in the territorial legislature. And they actually floated in the legislature that they leave Nebraska and join Kansas. Now, remember, at that point, the Nebraska Territory went all the way from the Nebraska state line that we know today all the way up to the Canadian boundary, all the way over to Idaho. I mean, it was huge. So these South Platters wanted their area to break off, form a new county called Strickland County, and join Kansas because in Kansas, slavery was legal. They wanted to be enslavers there. 1858, things changed. It took a new form. This radicalism kept getting louder and more strong, and people began to draw guns. Well, you know, in, in 1896, there was a writer who said that there's no way of arriving at a correct estimate of the number of slaves that were assisted on the Nebraska line, but it's safe to say there were several hundred. The work taught those who were held as slaves in Nebraska that they were on free soil, which they soon took advantage of. Wait a second. The number of slaves that were assisted? And it taught them that they were on free soil? That's right. The tide changed. It started in the 1850s. In 1854, there was a guy in 1856. His name was Jim Lane, James Lane. James Lane was an abolitionist militia leader in Kansas. And he was determined to move other abolitionists from the East Coast into Kansas to get Kansas to be a free state. You see, when the Kansas-Nebraska Act passed, 
the U.S. Congress decided that the states, these new territories, could decide whether or not they were going to be slave states, whether or not they would permit slavery. And this Jim Lane, he was trying to sway the vote in Kansas to make sure that it stayed free. So he started moving people in from the east. Well, when they went through, you know, they would come from Ohio, they'd come from New York, they'd come from Delaware. And when they came west, they would go through St. Louis, which was a huge city. They'd get outfitted there. They'd come up the Missouri River all the way to St. Joe. Then they'd cross, and they'd come through Kansas into Nebraska. That's right, they kept going. But along the way, you know, Missouri was a slave state. And these, uh, quote, free staters in Missouri, they wanted to stay free to choose to be slavers. Uh, they would attack these pro-freedom people. Well, needless to say, Jim Lane made a special route for them. Instead of going south from St. Louis over to St. Joe, he moved them from Chicago to Des Moines, from Des Moines down to Tabor, Iowa, to a town called Civil Bend, Iowa, across the river to Nebraska City, and then down from Nebraska City to Topeka. He made this route, and he called it, well, other people called it, the Jim Lane Trail, the Lane Trail. And during the daytime, abolitionists would move from the east into Kansas to secure Kansas's reality, real future as a slave-free state. It was bloody. There were gun battles. There were fights. There were all kinds of things. But that was just the beginning of it, Steve. Because during the day, the Lane Trail moved those white people into Kansas. But at night, at night, John Brown, starting in 1856, moved freedom seekers from the south along the Lane Trail to the north, up to Canada. And it became part of the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad was established in Nebraska after a guy named Dr. Blanchard in Civil Bend, Iowa, recommended to John Brown that it would be, quote, the most practical route for transporting fugitives in Kansas to freedom in Canada. And from then on, the Lane Trail protected the white people moving in from the pro-slavery terrorists in Missouri, and at night, it was an arm of the Underground Railroad. As they moved north from Missouri and Kansas into Nebraska and beyond. Lane's chimneys, these were rock piles and bunches of grass along Lane's trails. They marked the way. But in 1857, they need a little bit more, so abolitionists founded the town of Falls City. Falls City, Nebraska, right there. To become an abolitionist hotspot. They built a hotel. They had all kinds of different spaces and bases that were used for the operations of the Underground Railroad. John Brown, Jim Lane, and other people, uh, they would stay in these hotels and they would harbor enslaved people who were freedom seekers right there in Falls City. I found evidence of several stations and stops in Nebraska. Some of them have been identified by other people. I'm going to tell the story of a high school uh, in Nebraska, that's actually been super important to this work. But first, I want to tell you about these stations and stops. The first one was a station in Nebraska located on a farm just outside of Falls City. It was built in 1857. It belonged to a couple named David and Ann Dorrington. 
and it actually has a historical marker today to identify the Dorrington's roles in harboring formerly enslaved people, these freedom seekers who were traveling north on the Underground Railroad along the Lane Trail. <clears throat> Another stop was at the former town of St. Doreen. It was a, a, a half-Indian, half-Frenchman named Antoine Barada, who was called the lifeguard of Missouri. This dude stood 6'4 and weighed 310 pounds, and he had a reputation for saving slaves from drowning by personally carrying them across the river where he lived. The next stop on the Underground Railroad was a station located in the town formerly called Nemaha, just like the county. It was one of John Brown's last stops in Nebraska before he left for Harper's Ferry, where John Brown tried to overthrow slavery with a violent insurrection. The first departure point for freedom seekers to cross the Missouri River was after St. Doreen. Uh, they got to Brownville, and if they were, if it was possible there, they would cross the river. If they didn't do that, they would go further north to a cabin owned by Barbara and Alan Mayhew. Barbara's brother, John Henry Kaji, was John Brown's second in command. He was probably responsible for the Lane Trail going right up to their doorstep. Today, the Mayhew cabin is still there as a testament as a marker, as a highlight on the Nebraska Underground Railroad. The last departure point for the Underground Railroad in Nebraska was on a ferry in Nebraska City, the route of freedom seekers that went on to Civil Bend, Iowa, and Tabor, Iowa, then on to Iowa City and depart to Chicago and Canada. Funny story about the Nebraska City stop. Uh, the ferry there was owned by one of the biggest slaveholders in the city and one of the biggest slaveholders in the state. This guy refused to take uh, John Brown and his crew of freedom seekers across one day until Brown's militia of 40 men shows up with rifles and insists on their passage, their safe passage. They got across, Brown paid the man, and then rode on, and the man began to rally more to fight uh, what he called thieves of black people. I found a ridiculous advertisement from the 1859 Nebraska City News that said, Read, read, ye who are attacked with negrophobia. And it was an article that just wailing on old John Brown. You know, Steve, John Brown was active in Nebraska at least from 1856 to 59. And during that time, he moved at least 20 African-Americans from the South to the North to freedom. Now, there was trouble along the trails. It, it was not easy. There was a bloody shootout between formerly enslaved people and kidnappers that happened in 1857 in Brownville. There were... Uh, uh, a brigade of abolitionists gathered outside of Nebraska City in 1857 who were trying to uh, get freed and enslaved people through there. Uh, there was a legislator from Nemaha County who wanted to abolish uh, slavery in the territory, but uh, not only was his legislation tabled, but he faced personal violence when he got back home from Omaha. Oh, but Omaha was no safe spot for freedom seekers either 
Oh, but let's just tell one more story. The story of Eliza Grayson. I mentioned her earlier, but in 1858, uh, Eliza Grayson was an enslaved person in Nebraska City. She belonged to Stephen Knuckles. Her and a younger woman named Celia escaped. They had the help of an African-American man, a mixed man from Iowa, who offered to help them across the river and get them to freedom. And she took that help. This conductor on the railroad brought her across, her and Celia, and they went on to Chicago. Knuckles went looking after them. For two years, he hunted them with kidnappers and posse of his own. They found that man that I had mentioned in Iowa, and they beat him, and they wrecked his land. He ended up suing them and won a case for $10,000 against Knuckles, but Knuckles kept looking for his property. He ended up getting a leak that Eliza Grayson was working in Chicago. He showed up in Chicago. He showed up at the place where she worked, and he tried to kidnap her right then and there. A mob gathered outside of the building, though, and the Chicago sheriff came, intervened, and arrested both Knuckles and Eliza Grayson, put him into jail. An abolitionist mob gathered outside the jail and broke out Eliza Grayson. She escaped to freedom probably in Canada and was never heard from again. Stephen Knuckles ended up escaping as well. He had to put on a disguise so he didn't get beaten by the mob. He wasn't done, though. He kept agitating for slavery, and it went on. It went on to the point to where Dr. George Miller, one of the early settlers in Omaha, he started the Omaha Daily Herald in 1865. You see, slavery was made illegal in Nebraska in 1861, but in 1865, Miller started a newspaper, and he railed against black people and insisted that slavery never existed in Nebraska. It went on. Oh, ironically, there's a neighborhood in North Omaha named for Dr. Miller today, as well as a park and a school, even though he was that anti-African-American. It went on. The military actually condoned enslavement. They allowed it to happen. From 1848 to 1863, there were at last at least 10 Africans enslaved in Nebraska at Fort Atkinson, at Fort Kearney. There were enslaved people at Fort Kearney. We actually know their names in 1860 from the U.S. Census there. Now, they weren't counted in the state census because they were at the military post, but they were clearly enslaved people in Nebraska. Their names were names like Mary Chirrut, who was a 45-year-old from Missouri, Mary Badeau, who was 35 from Missouri, Henry Chirrut, age 10 from Missouri. There was a woman named Charlotte 26 years old from Missouri. James, 15 from Missouri. Jane Steele was 31 year old from Kentucky. Israel was 14 year old from Florida. And Jane was 18 year old from Kentucky. After slavery was made illegal in 1861, a lot of formerly enslaved people moved to Omaha. Most of their names have been lost to time, Steve. In my research, I found at least 20 names, 20 people, several of whom became notable in the city's history, including people like Lewis Washington, an abolitionist speaker from the East who moved to Nebraska in 1880, moved to Omaha, and lived the rest of his life there until 1898 when he died 
at the age of somewhere between 98 years old and 116, depending on the source. Edwin Overall, he was a local civil rights leader in the 1870s. He was enslaved from the time that he was born in 1835. Ophelia Clemens, she was a local political activist and community leader who was born into slavery in 1841 and died in 1907. These stories go on and on, Steve, and they just layer on in terms of them being thick and rich and full of a lot of history and evidence. In 1855, a legislator from Odo County named William Taylor was arguing in Omaha that uh, slavery did exist. He argued, he said, the fact is indisputable. African slavery does practically exist in Nebraska. Our eyes cannot deceive us. And if slavery is morally, socially, politically wrong, it's wrong to hold one slave. There's no distinction in principle between holding one human in bondage and 10,000. Now, he was saying this because of all the protests saying that there were not slaves in Nebraska. That charge was eventually led by a man named J. Sterling Morton. You know, the guy who started National Arbor Day. The guy whose mansion in Nebraska City is home to beautiful apple orchards that I have gone to and picked from, and you probably have too. Yeah, well, J. Sterling Morton published the first Nebraska history book. Summarizing his beliefs in 1865, he said, It will be more manly to accept Negro suffrage by legal enforcement than to humiliate ourselves by its voluntary adoption as the price of admission to the Union. We take the N-word only when forced to it by Congress and therefore remaining at present a territory. That's right, J. Sterling Morton wanted to stay a territory and stay pro-slavery instead of lose slavery to become a state. Morton later published the first Nebraska history book that was used for almost a century. And in that book, he told the story, the myth, the lie, that Nebraska didn't have any slaves. Today, there's very little recognition of Nebraska's slavery history, Steve. It barely exists anywhere. I mentioned the Mayhew Cabin and the Dorrington House and Barn site in Falls City, the Mayhew Cabin in Nebraska City, the Knuckles residence sites in Nebraska City. There's a burial site for uh, Barbara Mayhew that's in Odo County. The Nebraska House was a hotel where a gunfight happened in Brownville. All of these places are marked or need to be marked today. But more importantly, there are dozens of other sites. On my article on NorthOmahaHistory.com, I invite people to take a look for a list of those sites, including places in Omaha, places in David City, places in Fort Calhoun, and beyond that need to be marked to remember the slavery in Nebraska. Steve, it wasn't so much that there weren't slaves in Nebraska. It's that white people like me, including politicians, historians, government workers, and teachers, we've denied and neglected to see it, to see enslavement throughout the entirety of Nebraska's history. Hopefully today, with this history of slavery in Nebraska, we can start bringing attention to the reality that the state has a history of enslavement and that it can change today and into the future. Thanks for listening to the North Omaha History Podcast with noted author and historian Adam Fletcher Sassy. Join us next week as Adam takes you on another guided tour through Omaha's dynamic past.